I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 11 in our series, Exodus. After everything they'd seen and experienced, it didn't take long for Israel to just make up their own new God and worship it instead of the one who actually delivered them from bondage. It happened then, and it happens now. Exodus chapter 32, when you're there, will you go ahead and stand with me as a gesture of reverence because we are about to read from the authoritative, inspired scriptures, beginning in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. These words are inspired by God. Thank you, guys. Go ahead and sit down. We're nearing the end of a three-month journey through the second scroll of the Hebrew Scriptures, a book called Exodus. In the next couple of weeks, we'll read how the story ends, this kind of strange, haunting cliffhanger and the implications of that for the original audience and for our church. But before we do that, I want to stay in the scene that we've been circling for the last few weeks. There's a lot here, the whole Mount Sinai and the stone tablets and the golden calf and God's name being disclosed to Moses. Exodus is a story about God and people. The story, really, our story in many ways. God blesses people, but an evil oppressor, an enemy of God, rises up to destroy God's blessing and enslave God's people, so God sets out to rescue them. And he does. And for God's part, the rescue mission is beautiful. It's magnificent. Everything he promises it will be and much more. But for those being rescued, they often play the fool in the story, the foil to God's rescue. When the story opens, Israel has already forgotten their God, Yahweh, forgotten his name, who he really is. He's just to them Elohim, a spiritual being of some kind. They don't know him anymore, not really anyway. And then throughout the story, Israel consistently balks at God's goodness. They doubt Moses when he shows up with God's promise to liberate them. They complain throughout God's miraculous sign acts, and they complain after they've been rescued about having been rescued. And after mind-blowing feats of divine intervention and vivid, beautiful declarations of God's faithfulness, when Moses turns his head for just a moment, Israel takes earrings and makes up its own fake God. 
a golden bull of all things and worships it instead of the actual God that led them out of Egypt. Why? Why would they do such a thing after everything that they've seen and everything they've experienced? N.T. Wright wrote that there are two liberation journeys in Exodus, the first to get Israel out of slavery and the second to get slavery out of Israel. Thursday morning, uh, like this evening, was lovely. Yeah, thank you. Lexi, was that you that agreed with me? Yeah, amen. It was gray, it was rainy, a soul-soothing preview of the many months on the horizon when the, when the soul-draining, sweaty stink and halogen bulb ugliness of summer are finally banished by the hand of God himself and the world becomes cozy and comfortable and aesthetically pleasing once again. So I was in a good mood Thursday morning. I woke up feeling great. And, uh, and it also happened to be my monthly day of silence and solitude. So I was preparing to get my kids to school so I could make it out to uh, Mount Angel and spend the Thursday amongst the monks. And as uh, my wife Abby and I worked to get the kids fed and ready and out the door, I noticed that there was a loose pencil beside my son's backpack. I figured that was his. So I says to Beck, I says, I'm putting your pencil in your backpack. He was a foot away from me for context. As we moved toward the door together, Abby came into the room and asked Beck, hey, do you have that pencil? And I interrupted. He does. I just put it in his backpack. Then we stepped outside and began walking, and Beck suddenly whirled around in a panic and ran back to the house. And I said, what is it? What are you doing? My glasses beating with raindrops. And I could just hear him say as he ran, my pencil. I forgot my pencil. This is the world of one who lives amongst the small children. I'd like to you know, feign superiority and everything. But if you ask my wife what it's been like to live with someone who has ADD for almost 17 years, I'm sure she'll probably describe the two as sem at least semi-comparable. But it's not unusual that a moment like this, having explicitly described the pencil's location twice in the span of 45 seconds, uh, only to have both statements forgotten in five seconds after that, a moment like this might make one irritable even if only for a moment. But as I said, the morning was beautiful. I was in a good mood, good spirits. So I chuckled. I thought it was funny. Beck made his way back to the group. This time he heard me about the pencil. We made it to school on time. All was well. And then later that day, as I was out in Mount Angel, Oregon, praying amongst the monks, that memory of the pencil came to mind. It wasn't uh, that much of a unique or special moment. I must say that kind of thing happens all the time, several times a day, actually. And it wasn't a moment of egregious disobedience or anything. We know those when we have them. We've had plenty of them in our household. It was inattentiveness or distraction at worst. In my own limited capacity, I have plenty of patience for that kind of thing, on my best day anyway. But it occurred to me, as it has before and will again, I'm sure, how much like small children we are before God. And I thought about God a being of limitless capacity who is slow to anger. And I thought about his patience and his, willing to, his willingness to, in his own words, forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Not just uh, inattentiveness and distraction, but wickedness, rebellion, and sin. 
Exodus is a story about God's people forgetting the pencil like a million times. They throw the pencil, they break the pencil, they blame it on God, and then they ask God where God put the pencil, and they ask for another one, and then they break that one too, and then they cry and blame God for breaking the second pencil. Why? We're human beings, of course, so we're imperfect, all of that, yeah, yeah. But how long does it take, really? I mean, how many miracles and split seas and meals of manna does it take to get the slavery out of Egypt? And why, thousands of years later, are we still like this? We, as a people, as a species, have been duped. In the beginning, having created angelic guardians from cosmic spirit and creatures from lowly dirt. The creator God chose, of all things, the lowly dirt-crafted humans as his partners and collaborators in ruling over creation. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. But if you know the story, in slithered another spiritual being hurled down from God's domain into the land of dust and crude matter at odds with God, at war with him. And this spiritual entity wanted to do some damage. So it set out to convince humanity that they could rule and reign on their own terms apart from God. And this is a lie we continue to receive and a lie we continue to believe. So long after those first lowly dust-crafted humans took the bait, and having broken trust with God, were made to leave the garden, which was the overlap place of heaven and earth. And they were, as we are, mired in a primordial spiritual rebellion against God, led by the snake who whispered the first words of defiance against the Creator. The snake that goes on empowering all other claims to the throne of God. And the Bible goes on unpacking this tragedy, the redemption epic of this ongoing conflict across eons and nations and generations, heaven and earth from Genesis to Revelation. Really, it's the same old story, the same old rebellion, and we're still in it. We're not the only ones. In the Bible, there's a word, one word, a category title that can refer to a number of unique spiritual beings. In Hebrew, Elohim. In Greek, Theos. Elohim can mean angels, or demons, or gods with a lowercase g, but it can also refer to God with a capital G. Our friends at the Bible Project liken the way that ancient Hebrews would use the term Elohim to the way modern people might use the word mom when speaking English. See, mom can refer to different kinds of women in different kinds of contexts, but the word also refers to a certain role fulfilled by a certain kind of woman in a family. So a group of, if a group of children from different families are all talking and one little boy says, it's mom's birthday, the other children would understand that the kid was speaking up, that the kid speaking up was referring to his own mother by using the title mom like it's a name. In the same way, 
Elohim can refer to different types of beings within a shared category, but it can also be used like a name and in context makes sense to those using and hearing it. Here's the easy example. We still do this today with the word God. God, I'm sure you can figure out for yourself, is not a uniquely Christian word. It isn't even the God of Israel's name. And different people use God in different ways. But if I, on a Sunday evening, say to you guys, God loves you, you would know from the environment and from the context who I am, who you are, which God I was talking about, and you would receive it like it was his name. Our God actually has a proper name, Yahweh, and he is also a spiritual entity or an Elohim. But in the Bible, the authors make it abundantly clear that Yahweh is not simply one Elohim among many. He is the one and only creator God above all gods. For Yahweh, your God, is God of gods, or in Hebrew, or in Hebrew, Elohim of Elohim, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Same idea shows up throughout the Psalms. There is none like you among the gods. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. Worship him, all you gods, for you, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. One Elohim, Yahweh, is above and before all other Elohim, but there are other Elohim. You could call them angels or demons or cherubim or gods with a lowercase g, all other Elohim are created by Yahweh. They are not his equal. Yahweh is the Elohim above and before all other Elohim, the God above all gods. Yahweh doesn't need these other Elohim, these other gods, to accomplish his purposes, but just as he chose to create and appoint human collaborators, he chose to create and appoint spiritual collaborators. And just as many of God's human collaborators utilize their God-given autonomy to rebel against God, so have many of his spiritual collaborators used their God-given autonomy to rebel against their creator. And in the Bible story, these rebellious spiritual entities are depicted as empowering and influencing the human power structures of the world. Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey puts it this way, when the biblical prophets look out at the violent empires of their day, they see two dimensions to all the chaos and injustice, human rebels who are being corrupted by the worship of spiritual rebels, the idol gods of money, sex, and military power. In the biblical worldview, these spiritual powers behind human systems are alive and at work today. Paul, uh, one author of the New Testament, of most of the New Testament actually, master apprentice of Jesus, went as far as to say that for disciples of Jesus, the actual spiritual conflict in which we are all embattled against is actually not against people at all, but against the spiritual powers that animate sin and evil and suffering in our world. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When I was a kid, we had uh, angels and demons, for sure. We had, you know, the 
kind of blonde, Swedish-looking beings with big, white, feathery wings and long, flowing robes. In fact, uh, we had them on our air fresheners in our car, which felt like a, a little touch of spirituality on your commute, you know? And then we had demons, sure, they're little horned goblins in red pajamas, or maybe like a hairy black goat monster if it was on like a heavy metal album cover or something. And I was taught both were real, angels and demons, and both interact, at least on some level, with the human world, but how and why and to what extent, all that was kind of muddled. But one thing was for sure, there's only one being rightfully called God, period, and anything else called God is fake. And by the word fake, we meant non-existent. And maybe I would ask questions about why the Old Testament refers to other gods a lot with a lowercase g as if they are real entities or why the New Testament actually goes as far as to refer to the devil as, quote, the God of this age. But as was and is often the case with tricky questions, I would get the old, well, whatever it means, it doesn't mean what it seems to mean. Okay, sometimes that's true, I figured, whatever. But here's where things get really weird. Are you guys still with me, by the way? Great, thank you. Uh, if you've been at Vance City for a little while, some of this will be familiar, but whether this is news to you or old hat, stay with me, we're going somewhere, and this bears repeating. What do we do with the biblical paradigm of the Elohim, the other gods, spiritual entities, gods with a lowercase g? There are several popular options. This is not an exhaustive list, but a few of them. First, you have kind of modern cultural Christian monotheism. And this idea is that there's only one God, and Jesus is how humanity ascends the mountain, so to speak, to get to God. Jesus is the one way to the Father, which is true. All other gods, whether it's Moloch or Baal in the story of Israel, or whether it's Allah or Vishnu or other world religions, they are false gods, and by that, this view means they don't actually exist at all. The next view you might describe as polytheism or pantheism or a kind of universalism. This is the idea that there is God as a concept, and he or she or they or it, a state of being, an energy, the universe, whatever. There are all sorts of ways to get to this thing called God. And you can basically decide that for yourself. Find your own truth. This ambiguous worldview can even be stretched into a kind of, I guess we might call it a pandeism, or the idea that God is the universe. He's in all things, which is being mutated and adapted um, in a popular kind of writing by folks like Richard Rohr advocating for something called the universal Christ that is in all things. This, I would argue, is not the worldview of ancient Israel, nor Jesus, nor the apostles, nor Paul, nor the early church, nor Christians throughout history. And then, after that, you have biblical monotheism, or what is sometimes called in theology, creational monotheism. This, we would argue, is the paradigm presented by Jesus and the authors of Scripture. And in this worldview, there are many mountains and many spiritual vehicles by which one ascends each of them. Each mountain represents a way of life over which reigns a real spiritual entity or God with a lowercase g. This means 
the spiritual entities over and behind these worldviews can actually interact with and affect their followers and the world around them. Think of the story of Exodus and how the Egyptian magicians are able to call on the power of their gods to perform miraculous signs like turning a stick into a snake and repeating some of the early plagues. And if you remember the story, Moses' staff, which is also transformed by his god, Yahweh, devours the snake transformed by the Egyptian gods. Not so subtle metaphor on God's part right there. In fact, the story of the plagues culminates in Yahweh himself declaring, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. These are real and empowered forces active in other spiritual worldviews, but there is one creator God who is before and over all other gods. He is the God of Israel and of the world who has created, who created all spiritual and human beings, and this God is completely unlike all other gods. This God descends the mountain in Jesus and comes to us. He is the only supreme God, the Father, and Jesus is his truest and most perfect representation. He is teacher, he is Lord, and he is God come to save us, God with us. It's not just that Jesus is the only way to God. He is. But it's more than that. Jesus is God come to us. The God revealed in Jesus is not only distinct from other spiritualities and gods, he is above them. He is the true God with all power and authority, and all other spiritualities and gods are not. What does it mean to embrace one God and not another? Whatever it means, everyone does it. Now stay with me. We're almost done. I want to take you guys through an interesting period of the early Christian movement. Larry W. Hurtado, he, he died in 2019. He was a professor of New Testament language, literature, and theology. And in his awesomely titled book, Destroyer of the Gods, Hurtado visits stacks of ancient sources throwing hissy fits over the disastrous effects of this ragtag grassroots movement of early Christianity on the religions of the empire. The problem was this. The ancient Mediterranean world was culturally polytheistic, just like ours, meaning a culture of many, many gods. But this new movement had emerged claiming that one god was supreme over them all, and thus they refused to worship the gods. One second century writing laments that Jesus has persuaded the early Christians that they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping, worshiping that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Another second century pagan writer called Celsus also wrote extensively about the dangers of Christianity. Of his writing, Hurtado says, along with other pagan critics, Celsus complained about Christians' refusal to honor the traditional gods. Indeed, despite all the alleged stupidities of Christians, Celsus expressed a willingness to tolerate them if only they would honor the gods and follow the polytheistic customs that everyone else affirmed. By their refusal to do so, Celsus contended Christians questioned the validity of the gods upon which the social and political order rested. 
If masses of people followed the Christians in their madness, Celsus declared, this would provoke the wrath of the gods and the social and political order would fall into chaos. Now here's where I'm getting at with all this. Yes, the story of the Bible presents a hardcore worldview that challenges every other dominant worldview with its paradigm of overlapping physical and spiritual realms, spiritual beings, the whole God, one God over other gods. But the early church lived out the practical implications of believing this stuff as if it was actually true, not just theory, but practice. When the economy and your social standing, and even your own financial and physical well-being are all contingent on towing the party line and at least humoring the dominant cultural understanding of the gods, you would have to be crazy not to just at least keep up appearances. But the early Christians just wouldn't do it. In fact, one ancient pagan source I read this week specifically pointed out how annoying the Christian problem was because they would go willingly into jail rather than compromise by humoring the gods. The threats were all losing their gravitas. And I'm sure no one was entirely thrilled about being martyred, but they did that too. And remember, Christianity wasn't a dominant political powerhouse. It was a grassroots, persecuted minority. And even as it proliferated across the Roman Empire, it did so against incredible opposition. But they wouldn't budge. They went to jail for it. They died for it. We have writings of this, uh, about this all across pagan writers and in the writings of the early church. And yet, the serpent's deception in Genesis... The slavery entangling the heart of Israel throughout Exodus is the same siren song sounding eerily in the distance of every human heart today. Wouldn't another God be better? Or a couple more? Or someone that'll let us do whatever we want? Shouldn't we be in charge anyway? And can't everyone kind of be right at the same time? Everyone that we want to be right anyway? And a movement once known for its uncompromising insistence on the truth becomes watered down to the point of mere shapelessness. Hurtado argues, classic liberal forms of modern Christianity have often been concerned to align themselves with the dominant culture, affirming its values, even shifting in beliefs and practices markedly to do so. But the danger in this can be that unless there are also distinctive features and demands of being an adherent of a group, people cannot see the point of becoming one or the worth of remaining one. Disciples of Jesus believe something, and we don't believe something else. We believe what we believe on faith because Christianity is about something more than metaphysical certainty. It is about whole life faith, meaning I believe intellectually, yes, but I believe down to the depths of my soul, I believe, so I have decided to live accordingly, and that life shapes my belief. And sure, I doubt and wrestle with all the rest of you guys, my brothers and sisters, but I am no longer interested in languishing down the dark corridors of cognitive dissonance and functional agnosticism. It is a miserable place to live, and I have tried both things. Yes, I believe in dignifying human beings with humble, self-sacrificial love, 
And I believe uncompromisingly that Jesus is Lord. He is the physical embodiment of the only true creator God. All other claims to lordship and authority are by false gods, and I choose to reject them. Unashamedly, I choose to reject them. My allegiance is to no country or politician. I stand beneath no flags. Pervasive social media narratives are not Lord. Culture is not Lord. Career is not Lord. Money is not Lord. Family is not Lord. Art is not Lord. Not apps, nor streaming services, not fame or fortune, not laziness, nor sleep. There is one true God above and before all, and he is revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Why does this matter? Because the Bible argues that there are actual living spiritual forces behind the idol gods of other religions and worldviews with real influence and power in the world. These are not harmless, innocuous differences in opinion. Other people are not the enemy, but other gods are. And we are so like Israel in Exodus, after incredible feats of gracious divine intervention across the timeline of our great tragedy and our great need, God reaching down to the muck of our lives and stories, we can forget all of it and kneel before some other God we prefer in just a moment. And we have, and we do. How often have we heard stories, have we told stories? I, I can't count how many times I have lived out this familiar, sad story of I felt as if God spoke and he moved and showed up, but then I failed to act or I failed to continue in obedience and I convinced myself that he never spoke at all. When Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, he told them, listen, our struggle is not against human beings, but against spiritual forces in rebellion against God. He also encouraged the church by describing how the disciple of Jesus defends themselves against the true enemy. He said, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers, authorities, powers in the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth tucked around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and... Watch this, the only offensive weapon on the entire list, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The weapon is the Bible's inspired and authoritative story of Jesus' victory over spiritual rebellion by his life, death, and resurrection. We don't come here week after week, year after year, to open this ancient sacred text together as interesting food for thought. This is not a weekend retreat. This is not a book club. Are you kidding? I'm not giving my life over to some watered-down, everyone-is-right self-help spirituality. I am not offering you an option on the buffet table of modern spirituality. I stand with centuries of Christians who believe Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Early on in the Christian movement, the pagans became terrified that the Christians would undermine the dominant cultural religions and call into question the ultimate authority of political power. 
that Jesus would become the destroyer of the gods. And then they did. And he is. And that's what we're up to. God establishes his name and character amongst Israel to differentiate himself from all other gods and pledge himself faithfully to his covenant partners. And we read these stories baffled by Israel's foolishness. And they throw the pencil. They break the pencil. They ask where God put the pencil. They ask for another one. They break that one too. And then they cry. They blame God for breaking the pencil. But we should teach ourselves to see ourselves in their faithlessness and to cry out to God for mercy and for wisdom and for strength to walk the road of discipleship faithfully. Only a fool believes themselves invulnerable to the golden calf. It calls to all of us, and it calls to us as distraction, a glowing screen, a mini-series, sleeping in. It calls to us in the pressures of evolving cultural sensibilities. I'm scared to stand in courageous fidelity to orthodoxy on this issue. What will they call me? What will this person that I know think about me? Jesus' paradigm for allegiance and faithfulness was, was and is hardcore. Whoever's not with me is against me. That's Jesus. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Again, Jesus. No one can serve two masters. And listen to this. You love one and you hate the other. Sheesh. Not my words. Again, Jesus. And that's scary stuff because the world around you is practically begging you to compromise by diluting and dissecting your faithfulness and allegiance and handing it out to other gods in the name of everyone being a little right. right modern reinventions of ideas like coexistence and tolerance. You getting what you want and being who you think you want to be. It's the same old lie as it was in the beginning that we can rule and reign and define good and evil on our own terms terms apart from the one true God who made all this up. And behind the lies are real spiritual forces of darkness, not just harmless passive differences of opinion. This is about more than some war of ideology. Are you kidding me? I have no interest in any kind of cultural war or imposing what I believe in the public square, bullying other people. This is about the life of discipleship, untarnished by compromise and given over to true faithfulness at the expense of anything and everything else reaching and clawing at our attention and allegiance. I've been thinking about those words that I read earlier from Professor Hurtado this week. He said, unless there are also distinctive features and demands on being an adherent of a group, people cannot see the point of becoming one or the worth of remaining one. For our little corner of this movement, to not only survive, but to thrive, all of us will have to face the often uncomfortable truth that we cannot serve two masters, let alone three or four or a dozen. So what does it mean for you and for me to courageously confess in our hearts and with our lives that Jesus alone is Lord and to reject all other claims to our allegiance? Such a thing cannot be realized or carried out apart from the family of God's people. The scriptures open before us in humble submission, ready to walk with one another and hold one another to the truth of Jesus with loving, compassionate accountability. So to end tonight, uh, Mark Sayers is a brilliant writer and cultural commentator who wrote about Douglas Hyde, I, I believe in his book, Disappearing Church, which we have for sale at our book table back there after the gathering at cost. Um, 
He wrote about Douglas Hyde, who's a British journalist who came to faith in 1948 while working at, of all things, uh, the newspaper for the British Communist Party. He was the editor of the paper. And when Hyde abandoned the Communist Party to join the church instead, he was shocked and disappointed to find that the church was disastrously less motivated for change than the communists were. And he thought of how the communists approached their own community, who they pursued and how they did it. And though he no longer necessarily agreed with the philosophy of the party, he came to believe for a few reasons that their approach was better suited for the church. First, he said they looked for those willing to be trained. Anyone and everyone is welcome to wander in and out of this building on a Sunday night to take their time exploring their place here and in the story of Jesus. Absolutely no one is going to make you sign a blood pact or something like that. We won't even make you come to basics. You can do that when you want. <laughs> but for those of you who are all in on Jesus, who call Van City home, there has to be a preparedness. We're not here for an event or a social contract. We are here to train in the ways of Jesus. Secondly, they looked for those willing to be changed. Practicing the way of Jesus, the journey of discipleship, is a journey. We say this all the time. It was called in the New Testament, the way, for a reason. We are going somewhere. If you show up uninterested and unwilling to become someone else, to grow into someone who is more like Jesus over time, informed by his teaching, the scriptures, under the accountability of the family of God, then this will not work. Thirdly, and this one is huge, up front they asked for commitment, sacrifice, and a willingness to embrace unpopularity. They did this completely prepared for the unreliable and uncommitted to eventually walk away. Again, if you're new or visiting and you're thinking, my God, this guy is intense, <laughs> don't worry, the regular guy will be back next week. He's way more palatable. Please hear me when I say this. You are welcome to be here and figure this out. No one is going to rush you in into any kind of decision. And I think on a given evening, you can look around and meet someone who was uh, here for a long time before they decided to embrace community or our particular approach to church. All that's perfectly fine. But the church, this church, cannot go forward into the months and years ahead of us without faithfulness. And finally, students get, didn't come to be spoon-fed, but to become teachers themselves. And students would be expected each week to put into practice what they were learning. This is not a provided service. That's one reason that we call what happens on Sunday the Sunday gathering as opposed to a church service. That may sound like mincing words or nitpicking, but this is not provided as a service. Each one of us is here to learn and to contribute and to eventually, I hope as we grow in spiritual maturity, give more than we take, and in doing so, grow in our apprenticeship to Jesus. So noting all of that, the things he observed about the Communist Party and the things he observed about the church, Douglas Hyde was amazed that though the size of the Communist Party paled in comparison to the church, the Communist Party was mobilized and flourishing while the church at the time and where he was, was sad and dejected. On this, Mark Sayers wrote, one person's beleaguered minority is another person's dedicated, committed core. It's all a matter of perspective. We are here to follow Jesus. And on the journey of discipleship, we will be assailed by many gods clamoring for our attention and devotion, whether in the culture or something we pluck from our earrings and make up ourselves. But... Together, 
we can walk arm in arm faithfully down the narrow road of discipleship with uncompromising devotion to Jesus, the destroyer of the gods. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to follow Jesus faithfully together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.